Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. So, you know those stories you have in your back pocket to tell at like dinner parties or family gatherings or something? Those interesting or funny anecdotes that you've got down all the big important parts and know all the punchlines and stuff? Today's author, Seamus O'Reilly, just wrote this memoir called Did You Hear Mammy Died? And he says that writing a memoir is about leaning into those stories and figuring out the truth behind them. It's an interesting way of framing a memoir, especially one about a pretty bumpy childhood. But in this interview with NPR Scott Simon, it comes across that for all the grief and tragedy in his stories, there's always an awful lot of love. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. If you're five years old when you lose your mother... When people with red eyes and hushed voices start to fill your house, but you have never been to a wake, what do you say when they stick out their hands? Did you hear Mammy died? Seamus O'Reilly's funny and sweet, sometimes scalding and sarcastic memoir, recounting what it was like to be a little boy living through loss, doing that as one of 11 siblings in rural Derry during the times of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Mr. O'Reilly, who's a columnist for The Observer and Irish Tatler, joins us from London. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Your brothers and sisters were between the ages of 2 and 17. Firstly, let me register a wow. Um, (laughs) What difference did it have to have all that company in grief? Um, I suppose it probably made things easier in most ways. So being one of 11 children, uh, even in Ireland at that time, was you know, quite freakish. We, we did not consider ourselves normal by any stretch. Um, and in terms of dealing with grief, you're cocooned, I guess, you know, you kind of, yeah. the whole it takes a village thing is a little bit easier when you have manufactured yourself a village as much as it was great in a lot of ways to have that resource in such a trying time. It could also be difficult because you'd get past some part, but you'd see someone else was having trouble and then that would make you sad. And so it was certainly interesting. It's also the only way I've ever experienced it. Did you and your siblings finally get an idea how much she had done for you when she was gone? We did, yeah. I mean, I think certainly as I get older now, I can look back and see. I mean, I've got two kids and every day I think I should, you know, have street parties in my honor. And <laughs> you know, the idea of having 11, um, is you know completely insane, but I suppose at an early age I got a sense of just how how much had been done, particularly because I was seeing its shadow reflected in my father, who was left to bring eleven rambunctious children up, wow. and to do so with just pure hard work. I make fun of him in the book quite a bit because he's a funny character, like I think all dads are when you scrape down to them. <laughs> but it's really it's a love letter to him and to the things that he achieved, uh, as much as it is to my mother's memory. Tell us about the uh, the O'Reilly family bus. <laughs> um, we were obviously a bit too large in number to be conveyed by the usual vehicles. Uh, so quite tragically and mortifyingly, uh, we were transported by my father in 
a minibus. We looked a little bit like a youth group of young offenders who were going off to play in like a sports tournament. And uh, <laughs> it was, it's like, it looked like a municipal vehicle. It was nicknamed um, with some sad inevitability, uh, the O'Reilly Mobile. Almost killed you a few times too, didn't it? Yes. He decided he was going to cut text to Spain the year after my mum died to see her sister pulling along a 24-foot caravan. It was basically like driving the Empire State Building from Derry. <laughs> we just loved it. But we, we, we meant going through the Pyrenees between sort of France and Spain, which if you've if been there, if you've even seen pictures, it's that part where, you know, a donkey pushing a cart could topple over, you know, at any moment. So the fact that we managed to get by without dying was is is pretty miraculous. For your edification, your father maintained what sounds like one of the world's great private video libraries. I find that a lot of people particularly enjoy this facet of my father. Um, possibly nothing is more impressive than the fact that he amassed, for reasons best known to himself, a private collection of 800 films that he taped off the TV. I think because he liked the machines. He liked to have his machines, to have them working. He went further, however, because anybody could do that. He decided he would teach himself a rudimentary programming language, which allowed him to database all of these films. And so it soon became clear that that was actually the real thing. He liked to keep things orderly. He liked, he was a natural born archivist, I suppose, taping far too many police academy movies. He would often try to save a bit of time by putting two movies on the one tape. So if he had three hours, he put two 90 minutes movies on. This would result in some truly jaw-dropping double bills. I believe... Pride and Prejudice was on the same tape as Highlander and <laughs> a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was on the same tape as the last third of Ben-Hur. Um, <laughs> Robocop was on the same one as a as a sort of a country music performance that had been on Irish television. So you could watch these all as double bills. You just have to be in a very specific mood, yeah. uh, I would say. I want to get you to read a section, which I think is utterly gorgeous, about your family when you get together now. Sure. Telling old stories is a large percentage of what we do when we return home. We sit around the huge kitchen table, which contained us comfortably back when our feet dangled inches from the floor. These days we barely get around it at all. The whole thing creaks when we laugh. We do still fit, but if you need to nip to the toilet or grab another bottle from the garage, it's often easier to escape by slipping underneath and through a hedge-tight bramble of legs, shaking with laughter, than to inch past all those backs pressed flat against the wall seats lining either corner. Around that table, no one finishes a sentence, and we delight in each other's misremembered notions, undigested memories, embarrassing acts from its past, recollections of mommy, of each other, of ourselves. That's how we go on, isn't it? Mm, it is. And I think part of the process of writing a memoir is leaning into that impulse to go into stuff that you've told a million times and find the truth beyond the story. Uh, I mean, I write humour <laughs> generally yeah. from certain angles people might look at those circumstances and think this is a very sad tragic story when actually there's an awful lot of love and joy and fun in my childhood and I wanted to get that across boy your father's a hero how did he do it not just care for and love you all and look out for you all but be a source of delight too I mean I don't want to go completely nuts because he can be a crotchety fella when he heard the audiobook because uh, my, my dad uh, has diabetes, so his eyesight isn't good for writing, reading text. So he listened to the audiobook in five hours. It took him five hours because he had to slow it down, Scott. It was the first thing he said was that I spoke too fast. But the second thing he said was that I was too kind to him. And uh, wow. 
I think to some extent I knew I was going to have to say a lot of wonderful things about him because this is a man who had 11 kids, who was bereaved of the love of his life at 44 years old, brought us all up on a single wage in the middle of the troubles. But also just practically, logistically, how did he do this? He had six of his seven daughters were teenagers at once for two years. I can't imagine what that was like. And I was there, you know. Um, When did any of us get to use a bathroom? You know, when did he have a moment's peace? That to me is, is almost as, as incredible as, as anything else. Everyone in my family who's now had kids, you know, and most of us have, we've had the same experience where we just have a, a wet Tuesday at 2 p.m. We're covered in yogurt or we've stepped on a Lego and we ring him up and say, how did you do this? How did, <laughs> how did you do any of this? And he always answers the same way. He always says, which of you is what I give back? Wow. And that's a very sweet thing, which says a lot about him, but it perhaps says a lot about us that we immediately start suggesting candidates. Seamus O'Reilly, his memoir is, uh, Did You Hear Mammy Die? Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.